And knowing where we are in space and time uh, is a kind of wisdom. That's what perspective gives a kind of wisdom. Um, many of the greatest thinkers in history have said, wisdom is the art of judging and ordering rightly uh, all the things in our lives so that we can achieve our final goal. Judging and ordering rightly, but you can't do that unless you have the wisdom of perspective. If all we know is our own place and time, we're really narrow and focused. Welcome to Homeschool Conversations with Humility and Doxology, a series of interviews with real-life homeschool moms, dads, and other educators on all sorts of topics that affect our lives as homeschool parents. I'm Amy Sloan, a second-generation homeschool mom of five, and I am so delighted that you are here. Here on Homeschool Conversations, we'll discuss educational philosophy, family life, and more. Come chat with us. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Mr. Wes Callahan. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's an honor. Well, Wes Callahan grew up on a farm in Idaho and graduated in history from the University of Idaho. He's taught for 35 years in private schools, college, and university settings through recorded video lectures published by Roman Rhodes Media and through his homeschool online classes at Scola Tutorials. Wes and his wife, Danny, have six children and 15 grandchildren with another one on the way out here. <laughs> That's right. Well, personally, also, Mr. Callahan was a homeschool teacher in my life back when I was a homeschool high school student. So he will always be Mr. Callahan or Mr. C to me. I took, uh, I think, a modern great books class and a rhetoric class and maybe a couple others from you as well. So it's really a delight to get to share you with, with my readers this week. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your family and how you first came to homeschooling? Um, yeah. My, uh, in terms of the family I, I grew up in, um, uh, my, uh, my mother and father were both uh, uh, well-read, well-educated. I have one sister. Uh, they always encouraged reading in the family. We lived, I grew up on, uh, in the country most of my life. I always lived on farms. So we had lots of um, uh, quiet time. Uh, uh, lots of busy time too on the farm, but we had lots of uh, opportunities to, uh, we, neither my sister and I were involved much with, uh, were not involved heavily. She probably more so than I but we weren't involved that much in, uh, in town activities and school activities and so on. And we did a lot of reading and my parents encouraged that. I studied history in college. Um, uh, I got, uh, got married, uh, my, my wife, Danny, and I lived uh, um, uh, in the, uh, remained in the town where I graduated from college. And, uh, and the friends that I had made in college and the friends of my church there were all very much interested in improving our minds and the idea of education. And um, we, um, um, uh, had thought enough about it. This was in the very early days of homeschooling and, and very few people knew much about it in the early 1980s. Um, uh, but but um, my wife ran across um, uh, some uh, folks who were some of the pioneers, uh, uh, Raymond Moore, I think is the name and some other people, very early pioneers, aren't much on the radar screen now, I think, but uh, uh, we're advocating it. And neither of us wanted to um, like the idea of putting our, our, uh, our children that were just coming on the scene into a public school. And, and so my wife said, uh, we need to do that. 
And I said, without having any idea what it was, okay. <laughs> around, around the same time, uh, we're talking the mid 80s and so, mid to late 80s, around the same time that the, uh, the community of friends and the community, uh, the church community I was involved in uh, were becoming interested uh, in it. My pastor was Doug Wilson, and he was, uh, he was uh, kind of in the forefront of some of the uh, early classical Christian education movements. And he was doing the research that would lead to him writing uh, The Lost Tools of Learning and so forth. And we, so we were all in the thick of that and, and learning for the first time about what education was in the past, because the only exposure any of us had ever had, um, I'm sure it's different now because homeschooling has been out there. It's on people's radar screen. But at the time, the only ex experience any of us had with the idea of education was what we knew in the public schools. And so uh, we got into, a, um, uh, my wife and I got into homeschooling because of our despair when we looked at public schools and because of the interest she saw in some of these early books. And we got into a, uh, I began to be interested in classical uh, home, classical education uh, as it applied to homeschooling, especially um, as a result of the studies we were all doing, because other uh, others in our community also were saying, no way to the public schools. Well, over the years, I mean, so you, you guys were starting homeschooling back in that same time. I'm so thankful for people like you and my parents and my in-laws who were really pioneers. I think about like homeschooling before the internet, <laughs> you know, I mean, before you could just go on and get any information you wanted yeah. and really having to figure all this out for the first time. And I'm very thankful. We definitely, my generation of homeschoolers definitely stands on, on y'all's shoulders. But how has your idea about Christian classical education kind of grown and developed over the years, just as you've had time to think more and apply more and... Right. Um, you know, actually, I, I don't think that my ideas about about uh, classical Christian education um, uh, and, and, and homeschooling, I'm, I'm thinking of those two things together. I don't think those ideas have changed radically. Um, there's been refinements and... and um, and uh, one one refinement in, in particular, I'll mention here in, in just a second. But 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 the idea that things that um, that is that, that uh, uh, classical education is focused on uh, development of the whole of the, of the imagination of the soul of the mind of the spirit, and that it's not about getting a job. Uh, the the the, uh, the utter repudiation of the idea that education uh, uh, is vocational. Education is not vocational. Uh, vocational training is good. But education and vocational training are different things, and the abandonment of education for a pure, pure focus on vocational training in modern education over the last hundred, hundred odd years has been the great tragedy of, of our educational experience in modern America. And so, I, from, from from pretty much the beginning, we realized that that, that was the problem that uh, that education is focused on, on on developing historically has been focused on developing. Um, the, the 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 human person, the spirit, the soul, the imagination, and that means uh, reading history and literature and studying the languages. Uh, this is not to dismiss the importance of other subjects, but at the center of it is the is the is the is the human experience over uh, over long stretches of time, especially as it came under the influence of Christianity when the, in the, uh, when Christianity comes on the scene in the late Roman Empire. They absorb and take over some of the earlier early um, uh, developments of uh, education in the Greek and Roman worlds, and the Christians absorb it and develop a full-orbed Christian perspective on what on what education is, uh, and it and it, and it created what we call uh, or what C.S. Lewis calls old Western culture, this this dominant civilization that up until very recent times you know made what we call Western civilization. 
So, um, so, so my 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 ideas uh, have never changed much from the fact that there's there's a, a, a classical Christian education is a, ought to be a fairly simple thing. Uh, there's a few subjects that are supremely important, um, and that is focused on what we call the humanities or the liberal arts, especially involving the classical languages and history and literature. Well, let's expand on that a little bit. Um, why you mentioned the difference between education and vocational training, and mm -hmm. that education is really concerned with developing the whole human, uh, not mm -hmm. just getting them a job. Um, although obviously having work is important, but there's sort of different things. They're not sending them in opposition to each other. Yeah, exactly. Um, why is it important? Mm -hmm. How would you explain to someone, I mean, obviously I already agree with you, but why would you say that it's important to teach children a, the subjects of a liberal arts curriculum? And why do the great books or these ancient languages that you mentioned, why do those things still matter today? Well, um, given that I, I, you probably don't want me with you all day long, I'll try and keep this brief, but here's some, uh, here's some, uh, uh, here, here's some answers. Uh, one is that, um, uh, let's call it liberal arts education, because a lot of people might understand that. People who aren't in, in the circles we move in might understand that better than they would understand classical education. That's a fuzzy name for them. But the, what's been called the liberal arts or the humanities, um, for one thing, uh, gives perspective. Uh, just like a, a map gives us a, a perspective in terms of our place and relation to other places, um, the study of history gives us a perspective in terms of our relationship to other times. We know where we are in relation to other things and other people, just like we, we like to know where we are in, other, uh, in terms of our relation to other places. And knowing where we are in space and time uh, is a kind of wisdom. That's what perspective gives a kind of wisdom. Um, many of the greatest thinkers in history have said wisdom is the art of judging and ordering rightly. Uh, all the things in our lives so that we can achieve our final goal. Judging and ordering rightly, but you can't do that unless you have the wisdom of perspective. If all we know is our own place and time, we're really narrow and focused. Well, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know how much I love including poetry and other beautiful memory work in our family's homeschool day. But if you've wondered what are the best morning time poems to include, well, I have a free printable for you. Head to humilityanddoxology.com slash 100 morning time poems, and you'll get to download a list of 100 of my favorites. And then be sure to come back and let me know which ones your family has enjoyed. And that's one of the problems I've said from way back, and you might remember seeing this on my website many, many years ago, that um, uh, our problem as humans, one of our problems as humans, is that we're born narrow-minded and bigoted and egocentric. Everybody who's ever had little children knows this. They think they're God. And the first, one of the main purpose of education is to teach us that we're not God, that there's a bigger world outside there. And so long as we're trapped in this narrow and remain trapped in this narrow focus, knowing only our, our, our place and time, having what people call provincial attitude, I actually think there's a lot to be said for loving the, the local, but having a provincial attitude is an attitude that knows nothing of the world beyond you. And if we're stuck in that for the rest of our lives, an attitude that we're born with and we never leave, then we never have the, the wisdom that comes from knowing that there are other greater, even transcendent things that, 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 that show me what my actual size, metaphysically speaking, is. 
So, you know, um, a perspective and wisdom. Um, knowing what people, knowing what um, uh, in our culture, what people have thought true humanity is and what true humaneness and, 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 and what real human life is all about. Uh, one of my uh, uh, favorite quotes when I uh, talked to people about the value of classical languages was from a guy named Lewis Thomas, who was very uh, active in the, the medical community in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. He wrote a number of famous essays. I think he was head of the American Medical Association or something. But anyway, he talked about how he hated the fact that students would come to him in medical college having studied pre-med uh, in uh, in their undergraduate years. He said that he thought that was an awful thing. What they should do is study Latin and Greek and read history and literature and poetry. And when they come to medical college, he can teach them what they need to know about medicine, but they need to, they need to be human beings. When I go to the doctor, I'm paraphrasing the way he talks, but when I go to the doctor, I want to go to a human being who understands a human condition and not just tissue and procedures uh, you know, and and uh, and immunology. I want to know someone who understands something about the flow of the human soul and what people think ideal and good human life is. I want to know that that's true of my doctor. I would like to know that that's true of the guy who designs my house, architects. I'd like to know that's true of my grocer, uh, of the bridge builders in the world, of ditch diggers and backhoe drivers and and university presidents. Everybody, no matter what they do. Would, would benefit and would benefit the rest of us by having the wisdom that comes from knowing human history and human culture and the arts and the sciences that elevated the soul and that teach us what the real goal of life is. If people are out there digging ditches and selling groceries and, and, uh, uh, and, and building houses without, uh, and, and being doctors without any concept uh, of what uh, life is for, the purpose of life, they're selling people, they're selling groceries to people to keep them alive. The doctors are fixing people to keep them alive. The architects are building houses to keep us alive. But what's the purpose of life? If they don't, know, if they don't have some concept of that, uh, then uh, we have a really dysfunctional society. That's so important. You know, so I mentioned to you before, before we started recording that my husband is a bridge designer. And one of the things that he does as a bridge designer is he actually rehabilitates old bridges. He, he does mm -hmm. lots of different things, but that's one of the things he does. And I love to go, if he's giving a presentation close by, I love to sneak in the back and, and listen to him. Um, and he did a presentation on one particular bridge rehabilitation project they were doing. It was a historic bridge from like the early 1900s. And instead of just tearing it down and building something new, they were able to keep the, the arches from the original bridge mm. and actually make the bridge better and more functional now while mm. keeping the beauty of the historic structure, you know, the piece of that local town's culture. It was sort of an important landmark. And the cool thing was it was actually better for the budget and the environment as well. And so yeah. when I got to hear him talk, he, one of the things he said, and I was just like, I love you. I didn't say that in the middle of the presentation, <laughs> but uh, he was talking about how, you know, beauty and like engineering and being practical are not in opposition to each other. You know, he's obviously very good, very gifted engineer, designer, yeah. but he has that wisdom and that perspective that comes from knowing who we are in relationship to God that gives purpose. Like there is value in some of these other things too. So what you, what you were just saying is, is so important and it does, it does impact no matter what, no matter what your vocation ends up being. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. It's, it's, it's easy for people to, to misunderstand uh, what, we, uh, what we think the purpose of classical education is. It's easy for us to miss 
And to thank you that, we're, uh, that uh, when, we, um, when we try to classically educate, uh, whatever we think that means, um, there's a broad variety of meanings, but they fall under a certain umbrella. And, uh, but we, but we, we're not educating children to, be, to become classicists. We're educating them to become humans, to become real human beings the way God made us to be so that they can do the sorts of things that your husband is doing. I love that story. That's exactly the way it should be going. Yeah. Well, when you have taught many different classes over the years, obviously, what has been one of your favorite books? And I know that's kind of a, a terrible question to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you have a book that you just especially love teaching to your students and talk to us about that or why that is? That is a terrible question to ask, Sorry. Uh, but no, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a good one. Um, uh, I, uh, I'll, I'll mention, uh, I'll just mention a, f uh, a few that I love to teach to give you an idea, but I'll talk about one in particular. I've always loved Homer and I've been teaching Homer for, you know, well over 30 years. It's just a, a great favorite of mine. I have to be careful that I don't read Homer more than I read the Bible. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, I love teaching Augustine's City of God because it's such a comprehensive, vast, cosmic you know, view of, 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 the, of the world and time. And I love teaching Dante's Divine Comedy for exactly the same reason. Um, uh, but, um, uh, but, but one of the, one of the things, because this ties into something that I mentioned earlier and I forgot to get back to, one of the books I really love teaching is Eusebius's History of the Church. Uh, he, he's writing in the very early 300s as the first kind of, kind of overall church history um, in existence. And I like, I love reading and teaching that because one of the things that has changed, you asked this question earlier, one of the things that has changed over time uh, in, my, in my approach, and not, it's been, not been a radical reversal, but a, a growing awareness over the decades uh, until I've, I've come in over the, at least the, the last decade or more to this, uh, this utter and absolute conviction that what ought to be at the heart of good education, uh, Christian education, classical education, homeschooling, everything, uh, is a history of the church. Because the history of Christianity is the history of our people, the history of uh, Christ's own body, who over the last 2,000 years has been working to develop what humanity is under God and being made in his image, and what education should be. And if there's anybody that we should listen to in space and time about what education uh, is, it's our forefathers in the faith who've gone before us. We're not in the position of reinventing something, and we all know this. We're in the, or, uh, um, we're in the position of recovering what was, what was once great. Uh, but what made it great, and this is, this is just desperately clear, what made education great in Western civilization was Christianity coming along and taking it and and redeeming it and building it up and so on. So I think that the, uh, the study of the, of the Christian church is absolutely cent uh, central. And, uh, and for that reason, I like reading Eusebius because he's, a, he's talking about the early church and what the early Christian thinkers were, uh, were saying, early Christian uh, you know, um, uh, shepherds of the flock were doing and how they were struggling with issues and how they're sorting through uh, the issues of, of paganism and how much of it to keep and how we use it, uh, how, how we... Um, use it as Christians and so on. Uh, and, and, and Eusebius and the people he's talking about um, uh, live in a culture that, that hadn't radically changed from the time of the Apostle Paul. It's a culture they understood and lived in, um, in a way that, that, that we don't. We're radically removed in a way that we can't even begin to, begin to understand. We're radically removed from that culture. And part of the job of education is trying to overcome that, 
that, that gulf between us and that culture in which the scripture and the early church lived. We will never overcome it. I'm convinced of that. But we'll make, you know, we can make strides. So one of the great things about, um, about uh, C.S. Lewis talks in his essay on the reading of old books about the value of reading stuff from, from far in the past where the fundamental assumptions were, were very different from ours. And this is uh, more important for Christians than for anybody. Uh, we ought to be we ought to be uh, reading um, the, the the history of the church, and 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 I think especially the first millennium, what people call the undivided age, before many of the great divisions have separated so many of us. We ought to be reading those uh, uh, those people, and so for that reason, I, I I like the fathers of the early church, and especially Eusebius. It's just delightful to see what he says about how the early Christians dealt with attacks from the government, uh, attacks from pagans, attacks from heretics, how they dealt with. Uh, their own people falling away and being restored, um, how they dealt with the, the concepts of the canon of scripture and so on. So many of the questions that are still plaguing us now were answered back then. And the reason we have so much trouble now is because we haven't been paying attention to the fact that some people have already worked through these issues for us. Uh, and I think also Eusebius is a delightful storyteller. I mean, he's just a, he's just a wonderful read. That is so wonderful. I love that. Church history is so important. Um, in our family, we have actually like even picture books, the stories of Polycarp and Athanasius and Irenaeus and so many of these um, yeah. elder brothers in the faith. I actually have a roundup of some of our favorites. I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes for people if, if their children aren't quite ready for Eusebius yet. Um, you don't have to wait until you're in high school to be able to, to really get connected with with our, like you said, this is the story of our people. This is our culture, and these are the people we'll be worshiping yeah. with um, for all eternity. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I think that's really important. Well, changing gears a little bit, one of the classes I think I mentioned um, in the introduction, I took a rhetoric class from you. One of my favorite high school classes, we read like the Ad Herinium and Aristotle's On Rhetoric, and so many just fantastic things. Um, but I think that the word rhetoric or the term rhetoric right now often has a negative connotation and I don't think people really understand what we mean by rhetoric when we're talking about it in a like in the classical world um so could you kind of explain a little bit about your perspective on like what is rhetoric and then why is it important for us as Christians and how should we as Christians um approach the study of rhetoric uh yeah, when when um, uh, when you you had uh, mentioned to me before we were, were talking in, in an email, this was something that you were that you were thinking about. This question was something you're thinking about. I was reminded of uh, of uh, that time when you were in the class and how I and how I taught the class. And here's another area where I think I've I haven't I haven't changed, but I've but I've developed a perspective that I didn't have earlier on. But 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 I think I was feeling groping toward it to begin with. Um, I, I think. Um, Everybody understands um, that um, rhetoric is about the use of language. It's about communication. Um, most people would instinctively with respond would respond to the question, "What is rhetoric?" With the answer, uh, "It's the art of persuasive communication or the art of persuasion, something like that." And that's and that's close to it. Um, rhetoric is uh, in in, uh, in in the great teachers of rhetoric uh, from the Greek and the Roman and then the Christian worlds, where we see this long uh, this this long tradition. Um, the overwhelming consensus is that rhetoric is the uh, is, is the art of effective communication, and I think the word effective is is better than persuasive because, of course, when we communicate, uh, we often are trying to persuade people, but not always. But we are trying to communicate effectively, 
And so uh, rhetoric is, uh, is simply the study of the art of uh, effective communication. Um, and so uh, the, great, the, the, the great teachers like, uh, like uh, uh, Aristotle in the Greek world uh, and um, uh, Cicero and Quintilian in the, in the Roman world uh, teach the, the, the principles and the structures uh, that have de been developed over time. And what they're doing is what a, uh, what a grammarian does or a dictionary maker uh, or a field biologist. They're observing what's out there and then from what they observe, they see patterns and they give them names and they derive principles and then we can study the principles. So um, uh, all these great rhetoricians say that um, uh, uh, the rhetoric is an art. Uh, that is, there are people who can naturally communicate effectively with, effectively with other people without ever having studied it. They just are that way. They've got a natural talent. Uh, the rest of us, you know, we're, we're, we're a little bit more cotton mouth and we're a little bit more uh, tongue tied. And so we watch what they do and we see patterns and we name those patterns and then we derive principles and we study and apply those principles. And then we too, through study, can become what they are by nature. And this is what any art is, whether it's in music or a sport or whatever. Or whatever. And so it's the art of effective communication. But um, what, what, what I think I've been seeing over the years is there's another level to which we can take our understanding of rhetoric. Because a lot of people would say, would understand if I said, everybody needs to communicate effectively, whether you're gonna uh, be a member of Toastmasters or in, in a Congress or uh, be a, an attorney um, or not, everybody should be able to communicate effectively. Um, but I think the argument can be, be made stronger if you look at it this way. Um, when we think we think about uh, the things that we need to do and be, we we often identify uh, certain behaviors or practices or habits in one small area, which pursued assiduously will help us in every other area. So think about people who you know we go we go to the fitness center and you know we go and we work out you know two or three times a week, but we don't go there so we come we can be better and better at the fitness center. We go there so we can be better in every other area of life where we need our muscles, right. carrying the groceries, working on the house, whatever, uh, just being overall fit. Uh, uh, in, in in Christian life, fasting is one of these things. We practice fasting, and and and, uh, and uh, for many people, this, the season of Lent is wrapping up. We practice fasting because uh, Lent is not primarily a season of sacrifice, it's the season of discipline. If we discipline in one area, we practice saying no to the food that we normally eat, not because the food is bad, but because our bodies tend to govern ourselves, not our spirits. And so we exercise ourselves in one area, so then the rest of, in, in the rest of our lives, our spirits uh, will be more strong in governing our bodies. If I can say in various seasons, if I can practice having my spirit to say to my body, no food, and my body says, but I want a cheeseburger, and my soul and my, my spirit says, no, we're not going to have one right now. Then when my body uh, is tempted to do, do other things which are not wrong, but are wrong in the wrong places, uh, for example, lust and pride and anger and so on, my spirit is stronger to say no to it. Well, uh, here's, here's where rhetoric comes in. Rhetoric is an art that is very structured. It teaches you to see all the parts that go into uh, making a rhetorical act, whether it's a speech or an essay or a letter, or just trying to persuade your friend to go to a movie with you. So you think of the arguments, you think of their arrangement, where they go, and you think of the proper, uh, the proper words to clothe these arguments in, right? Um, so what you're doing is you're, is, you're, is you're judging and weighing and you're ordering 
And other arts can do this. I think, I think uh, the study of medicine can do this. I think the study of logic can do this. But the study of rhetoric uh, is, uh, is particularly useful because it's an art that everybody does. Everybody speaks. And if you, and if you can't help with speaking, but if you can't help yourself and you just have to speak, um, then you might as well do it better. And so here's an art that teaches you to judge and order and arrange so that you can speak more effectively. But even if you never were a public speaker in your life, learning the habit of judging and ordering rightly is, as I said earlier, a kind of wisdom. Because wisdom, as Aristotle said, as Thomas Aquinas said, as Augustine says, is the art of judging and ordering rightly all the affairs of our life so we can achieve our final end. So here's an art in one area. It's like, it's like working out the fitness center. Here's an art in one area that has application in every other, areas of our, of our, every other area of our lives. If I know how to judge and order rightly in my communication acts, I may be able to judge and order rightly in other areas of my life too, because now I know what judging and ordering rightly looks like and feels like. Um, so in other words, I, I, I've been arguing to my rhetoric students for many years now, rhetoric is an art that it doesn't automatically, but rhetoric is an art that can help us teach, uh, help us to learn wisdom. I love that. And, you know, I was thinking too, I just how wisdom has come up in this conversation, that being the end of education multiple times. And seeing things as like the, you know, going to work out or whatever, and it being for something much bigger, that also kind of frees me up as a mom from the fear of what if I don't get to every single thing my kid is supposed to learn or whatever. Like I can trust the Lord to take the wisdom that he's developing through our, our particular studies within our own finiteness and the limits, you know, of our family and abilities and time and all that. Um, and the spirit is going to be faithful to use that wisdom that's grown and cultivated mm -hmm. and apply it to things that maybe I don't have time or the knowledge to teach them. And that's going to be okay too. Yeah, that is exactly right. Well, what advice or comfort would you have to offer to the homeschool parent who is feeling a little bit um, insufficient for this task that's set before them? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I was obviously very blessed to have an early classical education, um, but there are a lot of my peers who they didn't have the same kind of education that they're hoping to pass on to their own children. So how can we go about repairing the ruins of our own education? Uh, where is a good place to start, you know, educating ourselves or re-educating ourselves? Um, and then how, what encouragement would you have? Like, are, is it too late? Can they pass it on to their children? <laughs> <laughs> the answer to that is no, it is never too late. It's never too soon either, but certainly never too late. Uh, so the first piece of advice I would give is for people to go back and listen to what you just said a moment earlier. Uh, that this, this, this principle of learning to do something well in one area will have broad application everything. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this, but, we, but in our souls, we don't believe him. C.S. Lewis says, do a few things and do them well. But we still, oh, but I forgot this, and, oh, but they're studying that. Oh my gosh, what about this? Uh, he, the reason he's right is because of the principle that we were talking about just a few minutes ago. If you do these things well here, especially if the things... I mean, you could, you, could, you could pick anything, but you want to pick important things. You pick a few important things, do them well, and then the art of doing something well will apply to other things, and the, and the ways that you study these particular things will apply in other areas as well. So people don't have to do everything. They really don't. And that's one of the reasons that homeschool, homeschool parents get so burdened 
because they see and 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 you know what um in a way over the last 30 35 years there have been so many resources developed out there there's so much out there uh, so there's so much help now available to, to uh, homeschool parents, but in a way that becomes even more of a burden because, oh my gosh, maybe this program is better. Oh, maybe I should do that one. You know, which one, which one do I pick, do I pick and then stick with? Yeah, it's, it's, you can't, you can't try to find the perfect curriculum or like, oh no, maybe this isn't the perfect one. In our family, we always talk about doing a few things, doing them peacefully and doing them simply and doing them consistently is going to be way more effective in the long run than doing a bunch of stuff and being all hassled and stressed exactly. out. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, I, so I, so I think the, the, the first bit of encouragement or advice would be, and, and I, I, I know, um, you know, so many of us are on board with this, but it, you can't be said enough. You know, don't, don't stress out about it. Don't worry about it. Um, and don't, um, don't think, don't think that you have to get it all figured out now. It's going to take a long, long time. Um, and so be, so be patient. You know, be patient with the process. Be patient with yourself. Give yourself slack. You know, give, um, you know, give, give, it, give it time. So keep things simple. Uh, be patient. Uh, and if people are, if people are, are um, you know, listening to this, watching this, they already have a resource. You know, you um, is someone they is, or someone they can go to, and then uh, you you can offer them advice, and you can point to other people as well. So they have a starting place. Um, they can uh, they can uh, they can look at the at the at the myriad of resources that are available out there, um, but not 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 so that it burdens them, but just look and see if something strikes them uh, as being more useful for the for the particular dynamics and chemistry of their family, uh, and. Um, and that should that should be done uh, always um, in consultation with someone who's further further down the road. So again, um, since um, this is an interview that, um, that involves you, uh, your audience can talk to you and say, you know, um, what uh, what do you think about this? Uh, what do you think about that? Um, so um, so for parents who are new, they should talk to somebody who's further 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 down the road. Um, and then um, and then more generally, I would say. Um, what, where's a good place to start in terms of uh, repairing the ruins of their own education? Um, we've all been in the same boat. You know, those of us who were involved early on, you know, I, 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 I didn't have a classical education. I wasn't homeschooled. I went to a public school. Uh, it's not a bad one. It was a, it was a, a small, uh, you know, it was a small uh, agricultural community and, and the, in the back in the 60s and 70s. And even, even then when the rest of the public education system was starting to fray around the edges in the in the rural communities they were more conservative and so but it, still, it wasn't a great looking back at it, it wasn't a great education and so we all had to we all did, had to had to begin the way i began the way many of the leaders of uh, people who are now recognized as leaders in the classical christian education movement began by reading just reading a lot well what should i read it doesn't matter just start reading well, of course it matters to a certain extent read c.s lewis read Mac george mcdonald read the great authors uh, read books about classical education, but don't just read those. Read the stuff itself. Find any, talk to anybody, talk to you, talk to me, talk to anybody, and ask them, what, can I have a list of the great books? Sure. And we could list off, you know, uh, you know, off the top of our head in an instant, you know, 10 or 20 books that are greats that they can start reading. And then they'll go, oh, I don't know, that's a really weighty one. And then they can talk to us again and we can recommend, well, this would be an easier one to start with and so on. 
but don't stress out about it. Start reading and read, read about homeschooling and talk to people about the resources available, but start reading the great stuff yourself um, because uh, you'll never be done. I'm still just beginning my education. Um, and part of the reason for that is because we all started so far behind, but also uh, the more I study and the more I read, and I'm reading and studying all the time just for myself. You know, I would be doing it whether I was, you know, a, a, a teacher or I'd spent all my life as a, you know, commercial fisherman. I, I would I would still be reading and studying stuff. And the more I read and study stuff, the more I realize how ignorant I am. You know, I used to, I, I, I used to believe what Socrates said, that real wisdom is knowing how much you don't know. But I'm starting to realize that, you know, that's actually what happens. The more you read and study, the more you realize how foolish and ignorant we all are, and how many mistakes I've made in the past, and the, and, and new gaps open up. I, when I was when I was young, I didn't know how. Not only I did not only did I know not know stuff, but I didn't even know what categories of stuff were out there. The more I read and study, the more I, I learn that there's huge huge vistas opening up that I haven't touched, and. Uh, um, it can drive you to despair or humility and maybe a little of both. Yeah, uh, last week I talked to um, Dr. George Grant and we were talking about education as repentance and teaching as repentance and exactly that thing, you know, there's a reason why I call, I named my, my site Humility and Doxology because that is ultimately where a good education is gonna drive you to realizing, like you said earlier, we are not God, you know, that he yeah. is and we are not. And then that leads us not to despair, but to praise, right? So exactly, yeah, exactly. And I've I've heard Dr. Grant talk about that theme, and he's so good. That's such a that's such a um, an excellent um, uh, thing to remember. I mean, daily repentance is a fundamental Christian virtue, um, or a fundamental Christian act. And 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 everything we do can be used to to, to fuel that, to remind us of uh, of uh, our need for humility in the face of a great and glorious God, whom we learn more about. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I, I don't know that the things I've been saying have actually been all that encouraging. They may have been even more depressing. No. Um, you'll never finish. <laughs> you'll never even get further down the road. You'll feel more ignorant the further you go. But these are good things. These are wonderful. Yes, well, it's like C.S. Lewis said, the last battle, you know, farther up and further in, the farther exactly. in you go, the bigger, <laughs> the bigger and more vast you realize um, the exactly. places all around you. Exactly. Well, exactly. <laughs> How are you combating all your ignorance and your further, <laughs> further realizing how much you don't know? What are you reading? What are you reading this week? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, as always, I'm reading several things um, at different times of the day. I'll pick up and something. Sometimes it happens. It has nothing to do with the time of the day. It's just my whim. But um, <clears throat> I think um, th that there's a, a principle of reading. And, and I might just be advocating this as a sort of self-justification because it's what I do, but I'm going to advocate it anyway. Um, I think people should read. Now, let me, let me preface this. Uh, when children are little, we have to teach them to eat stuff they don't naturally want to eat because we know that later they'll, they'll like it, they'll enjoy it. Um, so there, there's a certain uh, uh, sense in which uh, our tastes and our likes have to be trained. And in fact, uh, Aristotle says this is the fundamental purpose of education, to teach us to love what much must be loved. Um, <clears throat> but having said that, uh, at some point, uh, at, at, at the point in life, most of us, you, you and I, and a great many other people have reached, I think our tastes have been trained enough that we can safely say, 
uh, read what you like, read what attracts you, because most of us have, have learned to be attracted to the, to the right sort of stuff. We still sometimes have to nudge ourselves along. And so I, I kind of read the things I like. And so not sure why I said all that. Anyway, what I'm reading uh, right now, um, I love to read for my for personal pleasure and uh, relaxation. I love to read travel writing. So uh, I've been uh, uh, I've been going through some some uh, both some new and some and some previously read books, especially in this time of enforced not being able to travel. Reading travel books has been wonderful for me. Um, but John Steinbeck, uh, he wrote a book called Travels with Charlie, where he travels around the U.S. And that's quite a good book. Um, another, uh, I love to read sailing stories. And so I just read a book about a, about a, a guy's adventures up and down the, the inside passage between Seattle and Alaska. Uh, it's wonderful stories. And then on the other side, I'm reading uh, John of Damascus. I like, I like reading the early church fathers. And John of Damascus, who was, a, who was one of the great church fathers who wrote uh, around in the 700s, around 700 or so. Uh, and he wrote a, a sort of, um, uh, um, he was to the, to the first millennium, to the first millennium perhaps, what uh, Calvin was to the Reformation. Calvin's Institutes is kind of a summary, is the magnum opus of, of the Protestant uh, you know, theology. And so John of Damascus uh, wrote a book called On the Orthodox Faith, where he, where he, uh, which he prefaces with a book about the heretics. And then having dispensed with the heretics, he writes uh, about, uh, about the true faith. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful summary from the, seven, from the seventh century. Um, a time very different from ours, as I said earlier, um, uh, it's a wonderful summary of, the, of what was understood to be the Christian faith in that day. Uh, I've read it a number of times before and, and I've been reading it again. And then another church father, Gregory of Nyssa, who was called one of the Cappadocians in the fourth century, um, who wrote a book, uh, a, a book on the, the life of Moses, and he uses it as, a, as an allegorical way of talking about everything he can think of. So wow. that's what I'm now, is Gregory of Nyssa the one who did a lot of work with with worship, the order of worship, or is that a different Gregory? Um, you might be thinking of somebody else. Um, okay. He didn't write a lot about about uh, about worship um, properly properly conceived. He wrote a, he wrote a book uh, called a Catechetical Discourse um, about how to teach uh, newborns in the faith. And he talks a little bit about there, but um, there are other people who spoke much more about the formality of liturgy and so on. Okay. Mr. Callahan, thank you so much for joining me today and chatting. This was just really, this is really fun. I felt like I was back in class again. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time. <laughs> can you tell uh, folks where they can find you online? Uh, sure. Uh, well, you can find me on Facebook, um, uh, facebook.com slash WJ Callahan. Um, and uh, you can, my website is scolatutorials.org. Uh, it is uh, way behind because of some things I did last year. Um, I had it, I, I updated it, I had it all updated and everything, and and uh, uh, but it, it doesn't it doesn't reflect what I'm currently teaching. But there's a uh, you can go to the about button and the contact page works perfectly fine. You can contact me through my website and you can see the kind of things I do teach. It doesn't show my specific schedule this year or what's coming next year, uh, but it will be updated soon. So the contact part works and you can see the sorts of things I teach. Um, uh, if that's helpful for anyone. So scolatutorials.org um, or look for me on Facebook. Thanks for listening in on this week's Homeschool Conversation. For show notes and links to all the resources we discussed, 
head to humilityanddoxology.com slash homeschool dash conversations. And if these episodes are an encouragement to you, would you take a moment to leave a rating and review and to share with your friends? I am so thankful that you are here on this adventure with me. Let's repent of our constant striving, relish the joy of learning, and rest in the work of Christ on our behalf. Stand fast, my friends.